You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes up this morning uh, by the power of your spirit to the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, that we would uh, seek to uh, abide with you and to remain faithful to your commands uh, upon our life. And Lord, we know that uh, that happens uh, through your love uh, and grace, for it is your kindness that leads to repentance. And so, Lord, uh, pray that you would come and fill us at this time uh, and speak to us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. People excited about the tournament? It's going to happen with Alabama. <laughs> Some of you who are significant Alabama fans aren't even aware that there is something called basketball, uh, but it, it does exist. Well, uh, last week I felt like the class was really hodgepodge and kind of all over the place, and I would go so far as to say generally unhelpful. I think the last class that we did, not last week, but the one before that on Holy Communion is, is better, and we're going to take another stab at it when we talk about the sacraments in the coming weeks. Uh, but this week we're talking about Sugar. Is my wife here? David, would you go into my locker and pull my handbag out? My handbag. It's a Louis Vuitton. Uh, it's uh, my, my briefcase. I need my computer. Thank you. Um, last, uh, um, well, this week we're talking about the church as we move uh, through uh, the articles. And I want us, uh, as we always should, to spend as much time in God's Word as possible. And so if you have your Bible this morning, uh, I may uh, call upon you uh, to read some verses uh, for me, uh, because I think that um, we really do need to get at the heart at what uh, God's Word says about uh, church. What is it and what it's for? Well, how do we use the word church? How do you use it in your everyday vocabulary? Speak up. A building, right? The church building. A family. Try not to be Christian here. Okay. Uh, family, uh, church. Uh, an activity. I'm going to church. We went to church today, right? So it was an activity. God's house. The body of Christ. Coffee, stop being Christian. Body of Christ. And then... Um, uh, if uh, some in older generations may, um, may have heard it used in terms of, uh, I heard Andrew is going to be ordained. I didn't know that he was a churchman. Or Andrew has gone into the church. Uh, so there's an institutionalism. Uh, it's, it's seen as an institution, as if you know, Andrew's gone into the church as opposed to the army or the navy. Those called out. Uh, we've got Greek scholars in here. Called out. We're going to talk about that. Okay, well, that, that's, uh, so I count on, on that uh, note uh, seven ways, and there are other ways, in fact, that you'll go home and you'll say, oh, of course, that's how we talk about uh, church as well. Seven ways in which we talk about church. Uh, some related, uh, some not related at all. So when we talk about church to one another, how do we know what we mean? It's kind of inside speak, isn't it? All right. So if you go to church, 
you might have an idea of what we mean, whether we're using the word rightly or not. But what if you don't go to church? Right, I'm, here I am using. Uh, when I say, what if you don't go to church, what does that mean? What if you don't come on Sunday mornings? Right? Uh, well, it becomes confusing. So it actually does matter in some ways uh, what we mean uh, by church. I think you can use it in all the ways that we've used it uh, without uh, causing uh, too much damage. But I think at the end of the day, it's really important that we understand what the word church means biblically. For even as, as a family, even in-house talk, so that there's no confusion as to what uh, the church is, because it took you long enough. It's like I did send my wife. All right. Uh, thank you, David. Oh, man. Okay. So it's really important uh, how we use it, and it really does matter because it's going to affect uh, what we think about church, and above all, it's probably even going to affect how we interact with one another uh, as well as um, the world. And of course, there's no remote here. Well, David, I hate to say it, all that was for naught, but you look good. Got your exercise and just kidding, I've got it right here. Okay. So we're jumping around a bit in the articles today, uh, but, um, uh, but more than that, uh, let's look at what the Bible has to say about this word church. Uh, someone has given us the, a very good English translation of church ecclesia, right? The called out ones. Uh, that's what that word means in Greek. Those who are called out. And it may uh, be a surprise or not a surprise to you that that word, before it had a sacred meaning, had a secular meaning. So if you were to use the word ecclesia uh, in, uh, or ecclesia, however you, it doesn't matter how you pronounce it actually, uh, then uh, those in the uh, Mediterranean world at the time of Jesus or at the time of Paul probably would have mistaken it for its secular use. And it's used in its secular use uh, in uh, the book of Acts uh, as well as other areas. And so if you uh, have your Bibles, you can look in Acts uh, 19. And this is when uh, Paul and um, Paul is in Ephesus. And if you remember, there's a great riot uh, Demetrius, a silversmith who was making little Artemis dolls, uh, 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 got upset because uh, Paul's preaching had put a dent in the idol trade. And uh, so he formed a big riot, uh, a big mob formed in order to attack Paul. So this is verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now, what word is that? Some, now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly, for the ecclesia, was in confusion. Now, is Luke trying to tell us that the church was trying to mob Paul and put him to death? No. Uh, it's the same word in Greek, ekklesia, but here it's translated as assembly. And in verse 39, 
Uh, But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, the group that would come together that would be called out to determine Paul's fate there in Ephesus. Now, the use of this word was used uh, before the days of Luke in the book of Acts. If you look in Deuteronomy, uh, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which happened uh, between uh, Malachi the prophet and... Why is this not working? Uh, Malachi the prophet and... No, I don't have a prayer is what I don't have. Um, uh, And the Greek uh, Old Testament was... I might just have to read them. I'm so sorry, y'all. I'm hopeless when it comes to technology. Uh, The Greek uh, Old Testament... Uh, translates uh, it this way. This way. So this is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9, beginning with the 10th verse. And the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain. Now, who's speaking? Moses, right? He's talking about going up to get the tablets of the law. S- spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. On the day of the ecclesia, on the day of the church. So, this is how this word is used in a religious context. And it's harkened back to in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning with the 18th verse. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So Paul, I mean not Paul, the author of Hebrews is hearkening back to what I just read about in Deuteronomy 9, that day when the law was delivered to them, and when they heard the voice and they said, no way, we're going up on the mountain, we need somebody else to go for us. So God's word is spoken and it causes terror, strikes terror in the hearts of his people. Verse 22, But you, you believers, have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirit to the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you catch that? Innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn and to the church of the firstborn. No longer is it the day of the assembly in Deuteronomy 9, but now God's people are gathered heavenly as the assembly, the church, the ecclesia of the firstborn there in heaven. Now, when William Tyndale was translating the Bible, uh, great man that he was, anytime he saw the word ecclesia, he translated it as congregation, congregation. What modern translations have done, and what began with the King James Version, is they kind of ping-pong back and forth, trying to discern whether they really meant assembly 
or whether they meant church. But the problem was is that they actually don't mean anything different. That the meaning is the same whether you call them an assembly or whether you call them for a church. But here, here in Hebrews, we find out why the church has been called out and for what purpose. It's been called out, as it was in Deuteronomy 9, is a gathering of people who gather with the intention of being around God's word. That's what the church is. That's what the ecclesia is. That is the assembly uh, of God. God's people who have gathered together around his word. Now, uh, when we also talk about church, uh, we often talk about it in terms, we say, okay, that's, that's fine, but we also talk about it in terms of things like, when I say the church believes, fill in the blank. The, the church believes that Jesus Christ is Lord. What do I mean by church when I say that? Or what do you hear me say? Right, the official, uh, so keep that, so... I may be speaking about a denomination. I may be speaking about the church generally, right? The church Catholic. I might be talking about that. Uh, But I also might be talking about the local congregation. And actually what we see here in Hebrews and what we see elsewhere in in the Old Testament as well as the New is that the word church is never, ever used except to speak about a local congregation. That's shocking, isn't it? Because now everybody's like, oh, no. My whole life I've been talking about the church in various and sundry ways. But the word ecclesia is never used apart from the local congregation. In fact, even when Paul writes his letters, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, he writes them to specific congregations. Now, there is a sense, so there's two ways in which the Bible talks about church. One, the local congregation, or two, what we're seeing here in Hebrews, and we see this in Revelation as well, of the heavenly gathering. And so in that sense, the church is universal because the local congregations that gather around God's word are the visible uh, manifestation of the heavenly gathering that we're already a part of. The Bible talks about us actually being called up and a part of that gathering. Even now, even though we're in the body and in this world, we are a part of that heavenly gathering, uh, that heavenly worship that takes place around the throne of God. And what we're doing right now, this morning, is the earthly manifestation of that. In fact, James goes so far as to use the Greek word for synagogue to talk about the church. Now, if you remember uh, in Jesus' day, uh, there were two uh, gathering places uh, for the Israelites uh, to gather around God's word. Uh, One was the synagogue and the other was where? Right, the temple, right, the tabernacle. Tabernacle is another one. The temple, uh, after, which replaced uh, the tabernacle. And in uh, the, tabern- in, in the, in the uh, synagogue, uh, what happened there? Preaching, right? Uh, Jesus, remember, he went into the synagogue in Nazareth and uh, opened up the scroll from Isaiah, read from it and said, uh, this, the, this has been fulfilled in your hearing Uh, this day. That's what people went to the synagogue to do. They went to hear God's word read. Uh, They went uh, to hear teaching and preaching. Uh, They went for fellowship. Uh, When they went to the temple, what did they go for? Sacrifices. 
right? The, they went uh, for sacrifices. There was an element of, temp, of fellowship at the temple, uh, although it, was, uh, it wasn't explicitly rooted in faith uh, because the temple was a pretty big hangout place, uh, especially the court of the Gentiles and other things. It was a place for people to mingle. Jesus himself did some teaching there. Uh, people certainly went there to pray. Remember the parable that Jesus tells of the tax collector and the Pharisee? Uh, Lord, thank you, I'm not like that uh, tax collector. Uh, the tax collector saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, uh, a sinner. Uh, so uh, there was a lot going on uh, at the temple, uh, but it was mainly uh, for sacrifices. But what we see James talking about toward the tail end of his letter is that the church, especially the local congregation, is spoken of in terms of the synagogue and not the temple. Right? The church is the New Testament manifestation of the synagogue. Why the synagogue and not the temple? Right, that's right. So the Bible talks about the temple in two ways. It talks about Jesus Christ himself being our temple. Right? When we get, when we get to uh, the end of the book uh, in Revelation uh, and you look around the New Jerusalem, where's the temple? Jesus is the temple, right? But the Bible also talks about us being made into spiritual stones, that we ourselves are a temple and we are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is no longer confined to a geographic location, but is in us. That's a crazy and radical notion. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that, that God dwells in you. When the presence of God showed up in the Old Testament, bad things happened. Right, let's go back to the day of assembly. God shows up, and what do people say? You don't have to be the fastest. You just have to be faster than Moses. Right? Moses, you go up there because there's no way that we're going there. Think about Peter's first encounter with Jesus Christ. When Jesus is there teaching, they're mending their nets after coming in from a hard night's work. And Jesus says, let's go out and put your nets on the other side. Peter says, what do you know about fishing? But just to humor you, I'll do it. And then when they have the great catch of fish, what is Peter's response? Get away from me. Depart from me, for I am a man of unclean lips. In the presence of God, Peter felt his smallness in God's greatness. And that's what it meant to be in the presence of God. But then you get post-resurrection, post-cross. There's a man on the shore. You've got a little fire going. Peter and the others don't know what to do in light of this. They go and do it, you know, any time in a crisis when you're kind of coming undone, when you're having a breakdown, you do what you know what to do. They go fishing. And while they're out fishing, uh, some know-it-all on the seashore says, throw your nets on the other side. So they do it. And what happens? Great haul of fish. Does this story sound familiar to you? But what's Peter's response this time? Puts clothes on to jump in the water like an idiot. That's the great thing. That's something that often people overlook. Puts clothes on to jump in the water, and he swims as fast as he can and throws his feet at the Lord Jesus, knowing who he was. What changed? Because of the cross and resurrection... He'd been reconciled to God. 
and that God's presence now dwelt with men and women and children that come to him in faith. So that was the big difference. The gospel had taken root in Peter's heart, and he finally understood Jesus for who he was. That Jesus' presence, God's presence, was not to be found in a temple. God's presence was there amongst them. Now, we'd be right to say, well, that's nice because Jesus isn't showing up on the shores of any of my disasters in life, asking me to throw the nets in on the other side. But look what he did with the Emmaus disciples. Remember, they were walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up. They don't see who he is. And then finally, he's at supper, breaking bread with them, and then whoosh, he's gone. And their eyes were opened to who he was. And what did they say? Did not our hearts burn within us when what? When he opened the scriptures to us. So if the Emmaus disciples wanted their hearts to burn, if they wanted to have that experience of being in the presence of God, should they spend the rest of their lives looking for vagabonds on dusty roads and hitchhikers? No, they open up God's word if they want their hearts to burn within them again. And so God's presence is promised when Jesus says, what? when two or three are gathered together in my name, where is he? In the midst of them. Now, this has gone awful pear-shaped in some instances. In the 1960s, some of you may may remember Hurricane Camille uh, that was such a ferocious storm that not only did it just destroy the Gulf Coast, uh, it came up right through past Christian Christian Mississippi, but it even uh, caused deaths in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, which is a fair hike uh, from the Gulf Coast. It was a terrible storm. And there were some people in past Christian who uh, Trinity Church there... Uh, sits right on the Gulf Coast. It's a beautiful church. And you stand on the front steps and you see there's the Gulf uh, right there. And uh, while Hurricane Camille was bearing down, they thought, let's go and take refuge in the church because surely that's where God is and we'll be safe. And every single person that took refuge in the church died. Why? Because it was a building. It was a building that is probably the, the, least, the last building you want to be in. Uh, in fact, the, the church had been built so that it could be rebuilt after storms. It was on a slab. Uh, it really was meant to hurry up and just kind of fly away, and it did, uh, to the death of those individuals that were there because they thought, well, God is more inside the church than he is anywhere, but in fact, that's, that's not where God is. In fact, uh, God is just as present in a tornado shelter or bunker, as he is in that building, right? When two or three are gathered together in his name, uh, I am uh, in the midst of them. So the, so the Bible talks about the church in two different ways. It talks about uh, the church, uh, the word ecclesia, as a local congregation, and it also talks about the heavenly assembly of which we are currently a part and manifested here in the earth uh, now. But it also talks about, and some of y'all brought this up, uh, talks about uh, the church being the body of Christ. But again, that's in reference to a local congregation, the church in Corinth. Uh, It doesn't mean uh, he's not talking about the church in Corinth and the church in Ephesus. Uh, But actually the individual members that make up that local congregation in Corinth. Uh, But to his point, uh, it's called his body of which Christ is the head. 
And so the way that we relate to one another in the life of the church, the local congregation, is of significant importance. Uh, We're going to get to this in uh, Titus chapter 3 when we talk about those who would sow divisions amongst local congregations. Uh, That should be an exciting sermon uh, on Sunday. Uh, But it's no good to say, if you're the ear, to say to the eye, I have no need of you. Uh, Or for the hand to say to the foot, I have no need of you. Uh, That all of us are a part of the body of Christ. And and that means uh, a lot. And uh, we can flesh that out later on if you'd like. But also one way, another way in which uh, the Bible talks about, about the church is Christ's bride, the bride of Christ. In fact, uh, talks about uh, this in a way that I think shows us more significantly uh, what the relationship is uh, to Jesus and his church. The two, I hate to say institutions because that gets away from Bible language, but the two things that we have on earth that model Jesus' love for his people are his church and marriage. And that's why Paul talks about the local congregation being the bride of Christ. So let's talk about marriage for a minute. Let's talk about your wedding day. Uh, on your wedding day, uh, there you are, or whichever role that you happen to play, but you've got the groom who's standing up front, and you've got the bride uh, coming in the back. And what I really love to do at weddings is to do what everybody else is not doing, and that is, what are you doing when the bride comes in? You look at her, right? In fact, you're really upset that the usher, who has no idea what he's doing because he's 24 years old and is a complete and total idiot, has put you in the middle of the pew so that you can't see, Right? Y'all have never felt that way uh, at a wedding, have you, that you've gotten a bad seat? Why? Because you want to be able to have a clear view of the bride. And yet I like to look at the groom. And it happens every single time. The brilliance and radiance of the bride is proportional to the gaze of the groom. Sometimes you get a nervous groom who avoids eye contact and kind of is looking around, and, uh, and I'll actually lean over and hit him uh, because I'm like, you know, this doesn't happen again. You should look, uh, and you're going to have to look at her eventually. Um, uh, and it's okay if you cry, you big baby. Um, I'm armed with a handkerchief. And the moment that happens, she just lights up. She absolutely lights up. That's the image of Jesus and his church. Think about it. The day when we all become part of that heavenly assembly, that heavenly church, when we enter in, who are the angels going to look at on tiptoe? Us. Us, who are shining with radiance. And like the bride, do we look at our dress when we come in? We look at the groom, and the radiance is from the groom, not simply from our dress, not from our garment, not from our gown, but it's because of the love shared between the groom and the bride. That's just a wedding day, and that illustrates God's love for his church because within marriage, you know, you look at Ephesians when Paul talks about uh, the responsibilities, and I don't like that word, but the calling of husbands and wives uh, on one another uh, is a remarkable thing because Paul says, look, I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and his church. 
That's what I'm talking about here, although there certainly are practical benefits to be derived from it. And one of the things that he says is he says that, um, that, uh, that there's the washing of the word. And I used to think that that was kind of nice and sweet, kind of like a bubble bath. And then I got married and realized that is not what God meant at all. Uh, and what he meant by that is, as a kid, I grew up with brothers, and we would come in at the end of a summer day, and the first thing my mother would say was, go take a bath. So I'd go in, draw a bath, and as I lowered myself into it, all those cuts and scrapes and nicks and bruises that I was blissfully unaware of in my day, I became very aware of. Marriage has a way of making us aware of those things which we didn't really think about uh, otherwise. And in the same way, when we stand in the presence of God, when we interact with uh, his word, it tends to expose us in a positive way in the way that marriage is supposed to expose us. And here's the thing, is that Jesus says, I've laid down my life for my church, my people, this heavenly gathering. I died for you. Because we don't look like the bride on our wedding day. I mean, I, I, I talk about this a lot, but that's the amazing thing about a, a wedding day when when the bride's standing there and the groom's standing there, I'll say, look, let's face it, y'all are never going to look as good as you do today. This is it. You've peaked. Right? I mean, pretty much this is, this is as good as it's going to get. So if I asked you, do you love one another right now? I do. Right? It's really easy. To, you, could, you could tell this person something awful and dastardly that you've done in life. Like, in my spare time, I, I like to, you know, push children into mud puddles. Uh, and, and your future spouse would say, oh, but I love you and I forgive you. Right? you really can, I mean, you could do no wrong uh, on that day. But in our marriage service, when I ask, do you take this man, this woman to be your husband, your wife, uh, you don't say, I do. You say, I will. I will. Why? Because it's easy to love one another right now. It's 30 pounds later, pushing kids in mud puddles who now happen to be your kids, and, uh, and just life. Because that's where real love is manifested, and that's the love that Jesus shows us. He doesn't love us while we've got it all going on and headed in the right direction. He loves us while we're unlovable. So when marriage seems hard... Multiply that times infinity, and that is how Jesus feels and yet still goes to the cross for you and for me. So that's why he uses the illustration of marriage to talk about uh, his uh, church. So, the word church is used to describe the heavenly gathering. It's used to describe uh, the local congregation. Uh, the words body are used, the word bride uh, is used. Uh, but there's another use that I do want to get on today uh, because it's particularly, it's a Western phenomenon, uh, but more specifically, it's a colonial phenomenon, and that is the issue of denominations. Now, because I can't get the articles to work, if you have your bulletin, you can see what articles, and you can see that this is exactly where the Church of England was at the time of the Reformation in talking about the church. So I will read this. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men and women in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance and all those things that are of necessity are requisite of the same. 
So how can you tell if a gathering is the church? They're gathered around the word, whether that be the audible preached word or whether that be the visible word of the sacraments. That's where the church is. Anything beyond that is not a church. It's not. So let's get into some controversy and something that is uh, a product of colonial nations like ours. And that is the issue of denominations. What is a denomination? It's a European hangover. Because think about it. Let's say you live in England. You live in a village. How many church options do you have? One. You've got your local village church, the Church of England. And so that's where you go. You live in Germany. You might have two. Lutheran Church and the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, and we even talk about it in terms, I mean, here we go. Listen, we call it the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, the Lutheran Church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, when actually none of those entities meet the biblical definition of what a church is. So it gets even more confusing because in our culture, in colonial places like the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, anytime a boat landed, they brought their own people. So when at Jamestown... In 1607, who did they have on board the ship? An Anglican minister. And you can go to uh, where the Anglican church was there in Jamestown. But when the Germans and the Scandinavians went to the Midwest, what did they bring with them? Lutheran pastors. When uh, the Roman Catholics had their missions, uh, what did they bring with them? Roman Catholic priests. And so here in Birmingham... Golly, I mean, talk about choices. I mean, it's pretty remarkable the number of denominations that are represented uh, even in our town and denominations that you can't find anywhere else. Like Church of Christ, which some of you probably grew up in the Church of Christ. I mean, outside of the, the Bible Belt, outside of the Deep South, it's non-existent. Uh, and the only way that people know about Church of Christ is Toby Keith. That's the only way. Uh, they listen to Toby Keith songs. And so what is a denomination? Now, let me just preface it with this. I think that there are positives about denominations if they're looked at properly. Uh, There's a great benefit to being a part of a denomination, uh, but we shouldn't mistake it for a church. Uh, Denominations are associations formed around secondary matters. Denominations are associations that are formed around secondary matters. Church of the last detail. There you go. So, for instance, um, and even in our ne- so even the way we've named our denomination, the Episcopal Church means what? We want you to know that we're a church of bishops with an Episcopal form of government. So another group says, well, then we'll be the Presbyterian Church around a presbyteral form of government where we'll run by presbyteries. Right? Even in the name, uh, it. It speaks over what second... And I mean, that, that's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? And yet, uh, I meet people who, um, who say things like, well, I could never imagine being a different denomination than I am right now. I feel sorry for them. Uh, because if you can't ever imagine leaving your denomination, 
you probably should. If you can imagine leaving your denomination, sit tight. You're in the right place. And we find this time and time again, especially at the Advent. And if you have kids who are in college or you grew up at the Advent, you found this too. Uh, where you went off to college or you moved to a new town, and I hear it over and over again. I get the phone calls from uh, the first years at whatever college they happen to be at, and uh, they say, I can't find the Advent. Where do I go? Where do I go to church? Now, at that point, if you have a denominational mindset, you would say, well, you go to the Episcopal church. And you could do that. Uh, But what I would say is that how a church is governed, whether Episcopally or Presbyterally or uh, a different kind of congregational form of government, uh, that should not determine where you go to church. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is what matters most. Right? Remember... The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men and women in which the pure word of God is preached. And so if you're a part of a congregation where that's not happening, it doesn't matter what the shingle says out front. You need to be where the gospel is preached. And you may have found yourself in this moving to a different town. Or when you go on vacation, um, I'm going to go uh, to the church that preaches the gospel Uh, regardless of what the sign uh, says uh, out front. And to many people, that sounds uh, blasphemous, but I think that that's to mistake a secondary matter uh, for a primary uh, matter. Uh, And a lot of this has been created in our day and age because of the ecumenical movement, which in some ways is very good. But what they're seeking after is a visible unity that the Bible never, ever talks about. It's a given. If you're in Christ and you're in a church that preaches the gospel, you are in fellowship and unity with believers around the world. I mean, our Lenten preaching series is the definitive example, I think, of the way that this works. So this past week, we had two Baptists and an Episcopalian. Uh, The week before, we had two Lutherans. Uh, at some point along the way, inevitably, we have a Presbyterian or two. Uh, this upcoming week, we've got two Episcopalians. Uh, next, the week after, we've got two Episcopalians and a Baptist. Uh, now, why are they allowed to preach in our pulpit? Because they're Episcopally ordained? Because of the gospel. And can't you hear it if you've been to our Lenten preaching series, that regardless of what church they happen to be serving, you say, they sound like Advent. In fact, we had one preacher recently that someone liked so much who was a Lutheran that they emailed me and said, we got to keep this guy on the screen. we got to get him to the Advent one day just in case there's an opening on staff. And I wrote him back and said, oh, I can hear it now. We're going Lutheran. Um, and, you know, a lot of it does get hung up on this idea of ministers and how they are ordained. Have they been ordained by a bishop who is an Episcopal bishop? But, you know, this whole idea of recognizing ministers' orders is not found anywhere in the New Testament. Let me give you an example of that. If you're an elder, if you're a presbyter in the church in Ephesus, and you move to Corinth, you said, Turkey's getting a little hot, I'm moving to Corinth. 
and you go to Corinth, when you walked in, were you automatically made an elder in the Corinthian congregation? No. You weren't. Now, it may be that you live there for a little bit and, and people begin to recognize your gifts and they say, hey, you ought to function as an elder uh, in our congregation. And then uh, they begin to function as an elder. But there's no evidence uh, that you had this exchange ability. And yet it wasn't as if you would say, well, you know, you're barred, per se. Uh, but it wasn't an automatic given. So the people that we would bring on staff at the Advent... Uh, it's not because of how they're ordained. It's because they're committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there has to be an agreement on secondary issues. Uh, I would never hire anybody who says, well, I think that infant baptism is a sin. That's going to be a problem around here, right? Uh, in fact, uh, it, it, nobody has said that, thankfully. Or if somebody says, uh, or actually a secondary matter, they raise it to a primary matter and say that, Government by bishops is against the Bible. If they said that, they would need to take a walk because we believe in the governance that is set forth uh, in our denomination. It's just where we are, uh, and that's a given. But what we want to emphasize is what is uh, primary. In fact, the uh, Reformers get to this when it talks about uh, bringing ministers in. And it says, it's not lawful for any man to take upon him the office of public preaching or ministering the sacraments in the congregation before he be lawfully called and sent to execute the same. And those we ought to judge lawfully, called and sent, which be chosen and called to this work by men who have public authority given unto them in the congregation to call and send ministers into the Lord's vineyard. Who's responsible for the call? Not a bishop. Not a committee of the diocese, as important as they may be in the function they serve. These men who have public authority given unto them in the congregation. So when we talk about call, most of the people see it as like God's call on our lives, which certainly is true and, and biblical. But actually when ministers talk about being called to a congregation, you know what we actually mean? We don't mean we got called to a congregation because God said it. It means we got a letter in the mail that said, we want you to become our pastor. That's a call. That's what a call is. And so the Advent called me to be their pastor. Uh, like it or not, you chose me. Right? Uh, you, you chose me. I wasn't sent. I wasn't imposed on you. Now, some of you may feel like I am now. Uh, but, uh, but in fact, uh, it's the congregation. Uh, that makes, and not just the determination of who their pastor is, but who they send out to be ministers of the gospel. Right? That those people are carefully chosen and meet the prerequisites that Paul talks about in First and Second Timothy and in Titus as to who ought to be uh, ministers uh, of, of the word. So uh, before everyone says, oh, we're, we're going congregationalist, we're not going congregationalist, uh, but we're just talking about uh, what it means uh, to be the church. And the way the Bible talks about it is the Bible says is the church on earth is the local gathering of people around God's word, but that is the earthly manifestation of the heavenly gathering of which we're currently a part, uh, which is the church. And now that everybody's head's been totally uh, about what church is, uh, think about it. Think about that. 
uh, a little bit more, and especially uh, how we use words uh, like church uh, in our everyday uh, vocabulary. Because even uh, actually uh, what we're doing right now is what? Church. Uh, So church actually uh, uh, is what we're doing uh, right now. But I'm going to stop. I've got a lot more to say, but need to stop. So questions, comments, concerns? I know the word church, Mm -hmm. but the word worship kept coming. Yes. Because that's why I come to church. Right. Uh, The sacrifice of worship. Did you talk about that or could you talk about that? Yes, I can talk about that. Very quickly. Uh, So the word worship, uh, what does it mean? What do we go to church for? Uh, We don't come to church to breathe, but we do breathe in church. Uh, Worship uh, in Old English means worship, to give God his worth. And so that's something that, that we ought to do every single day of our lives, right? To, and, and worship, uh, and in our, it's actually changed in the latter part of the 20th century because now we have this person called the worship leader in front of a congregation, which is the worst thing that we could call somebody because then we think that, like if I said, well, let's stand and worship the Lord. What do you think is going to happen next? We're going to sing. Well, singing is worshiping God. No doubt, but that's not the only way we worship God. And in fact, the worship that God is looking for is a broken and contrite heart, right? A living sacrifice. We hand ourselves wholly over to him. We give ourselves up to the service of the Lord Jesus. That is our reasonable worship and our sacrifice. So when we gather uh, together uh, as as a congregation, uh, worship does happen. Uh, Absolutely, worship happens, uh, but it's not necessarily confined uh, to, uh, to that hour. But what I would say, Libby, probably to your point, is that worship happens in a particular way that it can't throughout the week. So, for instance, um, I, I seriously doubt that you have 500 of your closest friends over to the house every single day to sing praise to God. Right? You, you, you don't do that. Or to hear God's word together. Or to stand and recite the creed together. Uh, or uh, to listen to God's word together, uh, or to come to uh, the communion table together. Uh, So that makes church an extraordinary thing that we do on Sunday mornings that shouldn't be neglected. I mean, Paul, don't give up meeting with one another as some are prone to do. Okay. Have a right idea of what church is. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.